Are we on? Up and running? Up and running. All right. Well, good morning. Yes. Well, we also have to remember we're learning that God is sovereign. He's in control. He will pave the way. He will make the path. Oh, that's that was a good word. We're done. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we've been learning, isn't it? Everything we've been studying here is about the sovereignty of God that you know, if he can raise up and put down kings and kingdoms, he certainly can handle a minor thing in perspective to that, right? Yes, there you go. Oh, good one. See, she is on a roll. I tell you. Yes, yes. Yeah. It is, you know, the Lord, and the Lord does do that. I mean, think of Daniel's life, what we've been learning about Daniel and his friends who went into this captivity. Their nation had been disobedient to God. Their nation had refused to obey him or to follow him. But Daniel and his three friends were faithful. And yet, so when their whole nation went into this captivity, God was gracious to them who are obedient, but yet still dealt with, the nation on a whole and its rebellion. That to me is such a word of comfort too, because regardless of what goes on in our lives around us, that's outside of our personal control, God will bless us for our obedience in our heart. You know, even, even if people around us are not following the Lord like they should. All right. So we have so much to cover again, as always. And I, I, can say that we're wrapping up Daniel now. We're right at the, we're in the home stretch here. Um, I had a chart that I did the last time I taught this that was like mega. Well, I I was able to scrunch it down to just two pages. (laughs) That's really sad. But I think I did get it a lot more concise now. Before um, I actually went back and tried to cover all of the things that we had looked at and put them in their correct columns with starting with Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. This time I decided, you know, let's just hone in and focus on those last two portions, which has to do with Greece and Rome. And did, if you don't see it from, I'm not sure if the board, they can see it very well or not, but I have Rome, the fourth beast right? We all understand that. But Rome has a time of gap in it. And what is this gap time? That's us, the church age. We're not addressed. Isn't that interesting? You're going to find that to be an even more more profoundly obvious when you do Revelation. Although the book of Revelation opens with letters to the churches, but then after that, the church is never mentioned after that. When, When John goes into his vision and looks at the things of the end time, no church air anywhere. This always the saints that are referred to are those in Jerusalem, those affixed or attached to um, God's covenant with them. So um, this is the gap. And then over here is the the end time that is yet to come. So although God, from God's perspective, these two time periods in history with a gap in the middle of the church, it is still one kingdom. It's the fourth beast. Okay, so that's what, how we're going to look at that today. And we're going to try to fill in information that happened during ancient Rome. And then we're going to look at the time that's yet to come at the future with the end time king. So that kind of gives you a flow of what's going on. We're going to back up, though, first and look at a little bit about Greece, because what happened in Greece for us? What did we see when we looked at our study of the history of Greece in chapter 11? Or actually, 10, 11, and 12, but 11 in particular. 
it divided the Middle East essentially into four different um, dominions. Kingdoms. Well, yes, and and what was that kingdom that was predominantly discussed in chapter eleven? What was the major kingdom that was addressed? Greece. Okay, so it spoke to us about Greece, and then even though it shows us it was divided into four, four points of the wind, but then what what two points of the wind are pre predominantly spoke north of? And north and south. And they're north and south of what? Israel. Israel. Okay, so it's really interesting how God gave this kind of this big sweeping picture. It shows Alexander the Great coming on the scene and him conquering everything, putting Persia to its end, beginning the Greek empire. Um, I, the history with Alexander the Great, by the way, is fantastic. If you ever get a chance to do a little bit more look, um, he is the one that gave us the Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. And he, he had that language actually developed in order that he could send his word out through his, um, what would you call them, envoys or his soldiers. And that when the soldier received an order from him, that he would know exactly what he meant. There would be no confusion because of translation problems. So this, this Koine Greek was developed uh, specifically by the, the um by the ruler Alexander the Great so that he could communicate clearly. This is one of the reasons the Koine Greek in the New Testament is so precise. We, it's why when we do a word study and we go back to the original Greek or same thing is true with Hebrew, it's also very, very precise. You go back to the original languages, you're able to get a much clearer, much more concise understanding of what's being said in our English, which often really messes it up because our English, the way we use the, our English is probably the most loosey goosey of all languages out there. You know, one word can mean a lot of different things and you do have to know your context to know what it's actually speaking of. But the reason we're able to get such clarity with the Koine Greek is because of Alexander the Great. Isn't that amazing? Short. Yes. And think of it. Yeah. And God raised him up that he would actually create this language that then became the language of our New Testament. Isn't that an amazing thought? I love that. Okay, so what we want to do then is go back. We want to look. We know that symbolically Greece has, was symbolized for us. And she had us in day one's homework uh, to go back to all the chapters. Like we went starting with two and then seven and eight and nine. And I mean, she had us look at everything. It was a bunch. Two, seven, eight, nine, 11, and 12 was, was your homework assignment to start out with on day one. So rather than going into all the details on that, all I want to do is just talk with you about the kingdom of Greece and how it was symbolically represented in those things. And you should be able to do this pretty much from memory. In chapter two, how is, um, how is Greece represented? It was in a statue. And what part of the statue was Greece? There you go. Belly and thighs. I know it's been a while. Okay. Then in chapter seven, uh, what was it represented as? There was a beast that came up out of the waters. The leopard. That's right. Leopard. 
Okay, and then in chapter eight, which is the last place it's shown to us, and then in verse 21, it actually gave us the name Greece at that point. What was, how was it represented there? Shaggy goat. A shaggy goat. Now, the great thing about this is now when you and I look at just that little tiny list right there, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, he was there, he was there, he was there. So you see this repetitiveness. What does this tell you about pro a prophecy, a prophetic vision? So that just as a way of reminder concerning visions, how do we interpret visions, right? How do you come to an, an understanding of what the vision is about? Well, the first thing you got to pay attention is that that same place called Greece is represented in this one book alone in three different ways, right? Belly and thighs, a leopard and a shaggy goat, but yet they're all Greece. When you do your timeline, this is where as an inductive student, we need to do those timelines and get things lined up. So now that you're seeing this, it's a belly and thighs, it's a leopard and it's a shaggy goat. These were all given by visions, right? So those were the visions, and then the interpretation is given to us within the text, right? God gives us most of the insight that we have about it. So let's, one of the things we also learned is when you came to the shaggy goat, it talked about that shaggy goat having what on its head? Four horns. Well, first it started with one, and the one fell, and then four came up, and then there was a rather small horn that comes out of that. So here we have out of this shaggy goat comes, um, I'm going to put it here, out of one of the four horns comes, then we've got a rather small horn. And that's um, in contrast to another horn that comes up in Daniel chapter 7, and who was he? How was he called? He's called a horn, but what's he called? A little horn. And it, it's very confusing if you aren't careful. And the only way that you clarify that is by doing those timelines. And if you do put it on a timeline, though, when it spoke about the, um, the rather small horn, which kingdom was he in? I mean, the little horn, rather. Where was the little horn? He was in, he, he comes at the end time in, in the, the fourth beast at the end of the age. And what follows his, his work that he does? The eternal kingdom, God's kingdom. Very good. Nice job. Okay. So let's talk about that rather small horn. Let's just get a small list. We, I'm not going to, obviously you're not going to cover everything I've got on the sheet, but we want to get the big major points down about who this man is and how you're going to be able to identify. This is one of the things that we're going to do in part two of our revelation study is spend a lot of time identifying just like we did here, Greece being a belly and thighs, a leopard and a shaggy goat by different has different names, but it means the same thing. The little horn at the end of the age also is going to come in throughout scripture in a variety of names, but it's going to be the same person. And so what we are going to have to do as uh, inductive students is learn to identify by characteristics and behaviors, the things that they do and their character. And once you do that, then it won't matter what that person is called. When you see him, 
you'll recognize where, which kingdom he falls in, right? Uh, unless, of course, you have one that's real similar, in which case then you have to slow down a little bit and figure out which kingdom are you in, right? But still, the, the qualifiers are the most important thing for us to try to begin to learn. And by doing this today, what we're doing is benefiting ourselves later when we get into uh, Revelation Part 2 and we start looking at all of these different characters on the stage. It's really kind of cool because Revelation, it, it, it is a vision and it's like a play on a stage. And all these people come out, or entities, right? And they, all, they have a part to play in this picture that's taking place before uh, John as he has his vision. And we have to look at each one of those players and, and come to understand exactly who they are and what part they play in the storyline, right? Who they might be. Okay, so the rather small horn, we're looking at, that was in chapter eight, verse nine, he's identified as a rather small horn. Now in the first introduction in chapter eight, you might wanna flip in your observation worksheets to chapter eight. In case you haven't done a list like this, I'm not sure if you'll have it handy. But if you were to have, now there's going to be a lot of minor details in there about him as well. But tell me the major things that you see in verses 9 to 14 of chapter 8. What do you see about that rather small horn that you think is significant? What are some of the things that he's going to do? Okay. Okay, so he, he grows great. Now that is the, the major horn, the first horn, right? Was that? Oh, you're talking about the, uh, small horn. I'm talking about the rather small. Yes, okay. And what, what else do we know about? He, he causes some of the stars to fall. Mm -hmm. Some of the hosts to fall. He's going to magnify himself. He magnifies himself. Let's put that one up here. To the commander of the host, which makes himself equal. Yeah. He makes him uh, to be equal with God, God most high, right? Okay. What else does it tell us are some of the things that he's going to do? Okay. He removes... The sacrifice yeah there we go he tramples the holy place and the host both of them right mm -hmm. now who are the host That's right, the Jews. Do you remember what we what we talked about concerning that subject of the host and the commander of the host? What is a host? Just a real simple word for it. It's like an army. It's the army. And that's where I had said that song, Onward Christian Soldiers. We're, we, the church, are a host as well, but we're not being addressed here. But this host is God's host of the, meaning the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, right? Um, what else is he, in 13, it talks about something that he does also. No, in verse 13. Yes, his transgression causes horror. This is, I think, real significant, wouldn't you say? The, and what is a transgression? 
It's a sin. He, some kind of behavior that he engages in, it causes horror. Now you describe that to me. What do you think that might mean? Okay, so if, if the, they're being trampled, right, what do you think that's speaking of? Or, yes, could be persecuted, it could be trampled, it could be taken over, could be defeated, right, could be killed, right? Okay, so 813. So at this point, what we know is this particular rather small horn in Greece, he commits acts that are specifically against the Jews and God most high, against the Jewish people and their temple worship. Most of the information seems to really focus on the religious qualities that he, he attacks them on that level. Now, if we bring that into our present day, when you consider enemies of the cross and enemies of the, the church of God. What do you think that uh, might tell you and I about even some of the things that we're going to be facing here in these last days? Yeah. There you go. Fueled by Satan. It's, we are going to be persecuted. Why? Because the devil knows. Because <laughs> the devil does it, right? He knows. Yeah. Constantly trying to thwart God. So yeah, what did Jesus say about people that hate you and I because we're Christians? Yeah, they hated me first. They're going to hate you because they hated me. And and in reality, when Jesus speaks about people persecuting the church, like for instance, when he approaches Paul about this, do you remember what he says to Paul? Why are you persecuting me? Even though Paul was persecuting the Christians, Christ portrayed it and visualized it for Paul and for us to understand that because we are in covenant with Christ, when we are attacked, Christ is attacked. And the sa Satan knows that we are God's covenant people in the, in the church age, in this time we call the gap, which we're not even really addressed. But boy, there is application for these truths that we're learning for you and I today. Understanding who our enemy is and why he hates us so much and why the world hates Christians so much is really beneficial for you because I think you won't feel nearly as trampled. You yourself won't, your heart won't tr feel trampled and you won't feel even betrayed. What you will feel is in a way emboldened, I would hope, because why? Yeah, there, there's a scripture that says that these are clear indications of your salvation. When, when the world comes against you and when persecution comes at you, it's because they recognize Christ in you. They recognize God qualities in you and it enrages them and say it enrages Satan and Satan works through people who do not belong to God and he uses them to attack you and I. And so these are pictures. So that's what was going on even back here. God's covenant people in the old Testament we're, we're under a covenant of law, but they were also under Abrahamic covenant. If they had entered into the Abrahamic covenant of faith, believing God that the seed would come, then they became automatically an enemy of God, or an enemy, rather, of, of Satan. 
right? And so this is kind of the, the backdrop I think that's given to us is showing us spiritual warfare. Daniel really highlights that for us as we particularly got into chapter 10, we saw it more pronounced. And then all of a sudden, all the spiritual warfare that you had seen previously in little tiny nips, you go back and you go, oh man, yeah, the three men in the fire and Daniel in the lion's den. And I mean, you can go back and look at the real spiritual warfare that was going on. Okay, so his tr transgression caused horror. This is a spiritual warfare. Okay, so these were verses 9 to 14. Now let's move into uh, 23 to 26. Because this kind of flips a little bit and shows you a little different quality or characteristic about this man. Besides his, his absolute visceral hatred for God and God's people, what else does it show us? He's called, he's called what kind of a king in verse 23? Insolent. insolent. <laughs> he's, he's an insolent king. Yes, skilled in intrigue. I think I'll try to put that right here. Okay, that was in verse 23. Skilled in intrigue and he's insolent. What do you think that's speaking about? What, what does it mean by insolent and skilled in intrigue? Okay, yes. He's crafty. Crafty, yep. Any others? Well, knowing who it is, I mean, he came king. He used intrigue to get there and broke the rules to do it. Yeah, this intrigue, it, it alludes to um, a plot almost. Uh, like the word conspiracy a little bit, right? <laughs> like there's this, like in his, in his little pocket of tools that he works out of, he is more than happy to deceive people, to trick people, to lie them, to manipulate. I like that word. There is a form of uh, putting a mask on. on. On the surface, he's Mr. Nice Guy shaking your hands and smiling at you. But behind the scene, what is he doing? He's working, he's working for his own agenda, whatever that is. So this is, shows an insolent, insolent means he's arrogant. And skilled in intrigue means he's, he's, a, he's a sly fox. He knows how to maneuver things and manipulate things and how to basically trick you, right? All right. It, what else does it tell us about him there? Mighty power. He is, yes. His power is not his own. And what verse was that? 24. 24. Do, we, do we know, having done the study that we've done, where he gets his power? Say it again. There you go. In Revelation chapter 13, chapter 12 clearly identifies him. Who is he? Who is his power? What? Who empowers him to do the things that he will be doing? Satan. 
That's right. Because in chapter 12 and 13, it presents to us a dragon and that dragon gives his power and his authority to the beast. Right. This being a foreshadowing of the things that we're going to be seeing here. What this shows you is consistently throughout history, Satan hasn't changed his his plan the way that he works. He works through uh, intrigue and insolence, people who are willing to lie to you in order to accomplish their goal. And their goal is always for destruction, right? It's one of the things he says in verse 24. What does he do? Okay. So he just, he destroys to an extraordinary degree. And who does he destroy? Yeah. <laughs> yes, anything. <laughs> That's right. Very good. It's very interesting because you're right. It is, uh, Kristen, pretty much anything gets in his way. He, he tromples right over them because he's got the power and the position to do it. And the power that Satan gives him puts him in those places of of authority, which is what we see going on in our world today. We've got a lot of leaders in our world who are working very hard to destroy the world. And they, they, they have an extraordinary amount of power, it seems like, right? So they destroy. And when they do destroy, they destroy. This is interesting. Mighty men and holy people. Now, when it speaks about mighty men and holy people, who do you think that's speaking of? The saints. The believers, anyone who walks righteously before God, anyone who desires even, even if they're not in faith, anyone who is doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord is a person that they would want to destroy, right? Specifically Christians, yes. But also, even a person who may or may not be a Christian, but who's doing what's right. You remember when, when we study the kings and prophets, God judges these, these kings not on whether they're Christians or not, whether they're saved or not, whether they're, of course, in the Old Testament, it would be whether they're believers in Yahweh or not, but whether they do what's right in the eyes of the Lord or not. That's how they're judged when you look at those kings and prophets. Did they do right in the sight of the Lord? Okay, so just kind of keep that in mind, too, because one of the things I do think that the Christian church struggles with i mean they scratch their head about is people like we've had in recent history leaders who we're not sure where they stand with god but yet they did all the right things they were doing what was right in the eyes of the lord and it's really important that regardless if that's a person doing what's right you get behind them because god is going to bless that person and he he says of them they did right in the eyes of God. Okay, so mighty men might be among those kinds of people, mighty men who do great things, and, and it's great things in respect to uh, righteousness. Um, okay, now let's move into chapter 11. And there we see another title given to him. What is he called in chapter 11? When you hit verse 21, we're speaking of that same king. We, this is kind of review, so it's not like I'm introducing new. That's right. He's a despicable person. Person, And I like to just call him a despicable king because within the context of that reading, if you just keep reading, he's, he takes the, the, the throne by, by entry, right, by force. Yep, 1121. 
that's right, a despicable king. Because in chapter 11, you see starting in verse 3 all the way through 35, Greece is addressed, the kingdom of Greece. And you see the kings of the north and south, the bantering back and forth for internal power and position, right? Uh, one king over another, even these internal civil wars. It is no wonder that eventually Greece fell, right? And as you get toward the end of the Greek empire, this one called a despicable king arises. He starts in verse 21 and from 21 all the way to the end until he is taken out and destroyed. This is the same king as we see up here, the belly and thighs, the leopard, the shaggy goat. This is all Greece. But from out of this, this uh, kingdom of Greece comes a rather small horn who is a, a king. He's called a despicable king in chapter 11 verse 21. So what does he say there about, what do we see about who this king is there? He will come in a time of tranquility and return to kingdom by intrigue. Yes, he comes, he comes in by intrigue. Again, that's just like we said before, insolence and skilled in intrigue again, right? So it's almost like, oh, I've heard that verse before, intrigue, okay. And what does he do? What is he plotting? Yes, he, he practices deception. I guess I should open my observation worksheet to follow along with you all. What about verse 27? What does it tell us he's plotting there? Yes, he plots evil. But what's very interesting about it, because he is not the end time king, right? What other thing does it give us as far as information concerning this particular despicable king? Verse 31, um, he'll set up the abomination and desolation. That's right. It's a despicable king. Okay, let me get the first statement. He, plot, he plotted evil. And then there's a but. But was unsuccessful. There we go. For the end is still to come at the appointed time. Now, is all of that in verse 27? I think yeah. I thought it was. Okay, 11. That's what I had on my chart. That's why I was double checking. Okay, because sometimes I... I messed up my chart. Okay, so yes, and then what we also saw about that particular despicable king in chapter 11 was that he, um, he desecrates the sanctuary, right? And what else does he do? Same verse, 31. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the word and. Okay, and circle it and highlight it because it's telling you there are two things he does. Number one, he desecrates the sanctuary. And number two, he sets up the abomination of desolation. Did you, did you catch that before? Okay, well, if you didn't, it's okay. But this is where those con conjunctions like and and but that show up in things, you want to you want you want to pay attention to them because sometimes what they'll do is they'll show you that there's actually two different things going on here, or there's a contrast from what comes before it to what follows after it. In this case, it shows you that. He desecrates the sanctuary. 
And then I'm going to put and and circle it. And yeah, he sets up the abomination of desolation. So it says they and they. Yeah. Okay. So who's the they? Forces from him. Very good. The forces from him. So technically, obviously, it's what is the order. He's giving them an order and they're following his command because who is he? He's a king. He has the authority. And so they who are the forces from him, those who work for him, those who follow his instruction. So he might as well been his own his own hand. Right. Yeah, well, in here, okay, then let's go into the literalness of this because this is ancient history. Who was this man? Who was he? Antiochus Epiphanes, right, of the Greek Empire. Um, this was uh, this particular abomination of desolation took place December 16th, 167 BC. If you don't have that written down, just so you know, <laughs> December 16th. 167 BC. Okay. Um, so what did Antiochus Epiphanes do when he did these two things, desecrating the sanctuary and then also setting up the abomination of desolation? What did he do? First thing he did was he slaughtered a pig. So he desecrates the sanctuary by slaughtering a pig on the altar, right? And then what else did he do? He set up a false god of, in this case, Zeus, right, right before the altar. It's very, very much like what they did, what Israel themselves did in the book of Ezekiel. It shows them just before the Shekinah glory leaves, they have set up the statue of Tammuz and they're worshiping her right there at the altar. But do you remember that, Martha? We did that. You were with me, right? When we did that study, it, that blew my mind what they that literally they weren't just doing it kind of on the sly and being you know lazy about coming to the temple no they brought their statues with them brought them into the into the worship center set it right at the altar of god and those were the jews and those were the jews that were doing that here the, now what's good is that had apparently been corrected through Babylon and Medo-Persia, these times of being in captivity. Now they were back on their land. And now what God is saying here with Greece, by the time we get to the Greek empire, now what occurred when all this happened, when this desecration happened and the abomination of desolation? Mm -hmm. That's right, the Maccabean revolt. And you can look at that in the books of Maccabees. It's in the Catholic um, a portion of the Bible. So if you want the historical reading on that, it's a great place to go and read it. It does give you the insight on it. Um, it is recorded history. It's also, if you Google it, Maccabean Revolt, you can read about the whole thing just out of curiosity. Why might that be beneficial for us to do? As students of what we're about to move into, why might this might be a good thing to go look, read about? There you go. What God is doing is he's giving us a foreshadowing of what is going to happen. But but in comparison, how do the two compare? This abomination of desolation, how does it compare to what's going to happen at the end? <laughs> yeah, this is a little one. This is like the rather small horn as opposed to when the 
the little horn who's actually a big horn, right? He comes on the scene. So there's this distinction between it and what uh, Daniel 12 says at the opening of 12, um, he says, now um, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation, a nation being who? Israel. Until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Boy, aren't you glad he kept going on that sentence? Because if you're talking about a time such as has never been, this was really horrific. When you go back and read what happened with the, the Maccabean revolt and with the desecration of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, it was not pretty. Lots of people were slaughtered right there. Um, there was one I heard of a little boy that came up and uh, someone had told him to make this desecration and he, no one was going to do it. And this little boy came up to do it. And um, the priest slaughtered the boy, killed the little Jewish boy who was going to do this act of desecration. And because he was right, he was zealous for God. Now there's a righteous kill if you ever saw one. And we think of that and go, what? That's horrifying. How could you do that? Of course, our court systems would do what to that priest? Off with his head, right? He'd be in jail and gone forever. You can't even protect what's holy and righteous in, a, in an unjust system. And that's where you and I are almost at, and we are seriously heading toward much, much more of this down the road. Just so that you understand, you may be required to take stands that you don't, that are going to be very uncomfortable for you. That hopefully doesn't mean you're going to have to kill someone, but hopefully, but. <laughs> okay. I'm going to let my husband be off. <laughs> uh, it's a joke. <laughs> and to, <laughs> it was a joke. We know that. Oh, we totally, let's, but it's recorded. We've got, yeah, so, <laughs> that's all, it's all right listen there's no to i can't tell you how many times i've killed my husband in my mind but i that's because 48 years of marriage you know what can you say eventually you do get there i'm sure he's killed me over and over too so but listen my point here is what god has given to us in his written word as an as a, a glimpse of understanding is only found if we go back and do the research and the study. And I think if you really want to get profoundly emboldened and profoundly prepared and really anchored so that as our day approaches and the day of Christ is approaching very quickly right now, as we approach these days where Christians are really, they're gonna have their feet held to the fire. The good news is what he, we just read there in, in verse 12, we're gonna be rescued out of this. We, the church will be raptured out. The sad part is for those who won't accept Christ in this current uh, age of the church, the gap in time that we're standing in right now, if, you, if they won't accept Christ during this church age, and now we become raptured out of here, they're going to have to endure through these end times. There you go. That was my next step. Exactly. Very good. No, that's perfect. That's exactly right. But they will be rescued. They're promised that. If you will endure to the end, now it might cost you your life. Mm -hmm. You might die during those days as well. I wish they would. And uh, yes, and in some cases, wish you you would die. Um, we have learned concerning the Jews that they go 
they have a times, time and half a time when things are so difficult and so severe. What does God do for them? Because we looked at this in Matthew. What happened in Matthew when you looked at Matthew? You looked at Matthew and Mark. They flee to the mountains. This is the time when Israel will flee. They will flee for a time, times and half a time. And those three and a half years will be a time of having fled because they're hiding and they will literally be protected by God in this place, wherever it is that they flee to. We believe it's Petra, but we don't know that for sure. Um, but we do know the general location is right there. Okay. So wherever they're going to flee to, they're going to flee to this place called Basra. As there's another scripture you get later, but, and it tells you, this is where they flee to and they will be protected by God on, on the wings God takes them. So this is the comfort that we're getting from looking back at history, looking at what happened in Greece, looking at a time when there was a abomination of desolation, when there was a time of this skilled intrigue and this insolent king and the, the idea of him magnifying himself to be equal with God and even above God and that he won't worship any gods. Remember the list we did last week on, the, on all the gods? We went through this whole list of the God of this, and the God of that, and the God, you know, no God. And I also got on to a little bit further last week after we stopped. We talked about the God of fortresses. We weren't sure what that is. I don't know what that is, but here's what I do know. It's another God system. It's another worship. If you just keep adding to your list, we circled God, 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 God. God as we went down, right? He starts it by saying he magnifies himself above and he closes it by saying he, he will not submit to any other God, right? And it does say that the other God, gods are fortresses. That's and right. Very it so does. It really does clarify. It does clear it for you. It, whatever it is, it is a God system of worship. And I, I don't know for sure what it is in that end time. It's not identified. But what we know is it's a system of God worship. And whatever it is, he rejects it. What, what's very interesting to me is he doesn't even care if it's just Yahweh, God most high. He, he doesn't like any other God that gets in the way of him being worshipped. He's going to magnify himself above it all. We studied a couple weeks back um, in Isaiah and Ezekiel about Satan and his fall, right? What was the ultimate problem for him? What had caused him to, haul, to fall? His pride. He wanted to magnify himself above God so that he would be worshipped and equal to God. You know, and I hear when you say he, he doesn't want anything but himself to be looked at and seen. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if he's doing what they're doing now and they're just eliminating history. Yes. Yeah. Because they want everything to be forgotten and forgot just on them the only truth out there is them that's exactly right very good analogy there and in this case we get a, a preview this is like watching a preview to a movie we got a preview right here of what's going to happen but the real the real terror and horror of it will happen at the end of the age yes he will, not, yes, but we did get a little bit of it even in Daniel. Do you remember a time when there was someone who wanted to exalt themselves and be worshipped? Who was that? Nebuchadnezzar. And he set up a statue, and it doesn't say what the statue is of, but remember the statue that dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, he was just the head of gold. 
and the, and then it was going to be crushed and there was going to be other kingdoms to come that followed, right? He didn't like that so much. So what did he do? He set up a statue. Nine feet tall, yeah, and and required that everyone, when the sound of the tambourines and the harps and the whatever sounded, everyone was to fall down and worship it. So in a way, you got a little prelude to what what happens here and what will happen at the end of the age in that as well. It's it's interesting how evil never changes, pride never changes. Right, but it to grow. it's going to get worse. Yeah, at some point though, God's going to put it to its end. He's going to say, "There's an appointed time for this to happen. There's an amount of time in history I'm going to allow for these to happen." He he did the same thing with the Genesis account. Do you remember in Genesis where he allowed man to go wayward for so long, and then he said, "This is it. I shall not strive with man forever." And he said, his name, his, his days shall be 120, I think it was. And so in 120 days, that's how long he allowed Noah to build the ark and to witness to them. And then, or 120 years, rather, I should say, not days, years. <laughs> yes, yes. That's the good story. How, hey, hey, I know some people like him. That is able to humble Proud, he is able to. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about that. The words you did some word studies on the word desolate and also uh, abomination of desolation. Okay, because in Matthew 24, now when you guys did your Matthew 24, how did that go for you? Okay, here's what I want to show you. I, I honestly am not sure why Precept does not do this for us, but um, if you will take your scriptures... Martha knows exactly where I'm going, right, Martha? If you will take your scriptures, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, you can do the whole chapter, and set them side by side and line up things that are similar and key mark your words. Everybody's shaking their head, yeah. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> oh, now I see. Exactly. What's really cool is... What you see here is when you get down, for instance, here to the part where it speaks about the abomination of desolation, I actually put a box around both of those just so that they would clearly lay, line up and you would be able to see how they do. But look at up here how you see similar markings. See my markings, how they match up, even the colors all the way down? I, I used a red letter. I should have done the whole thing in black. It would have been a lot easier to mark. But the red letter, because it's Jesus speaking, right? And so if you do it that way, you're going to find, and by the way, you can do this with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them. Um, there are some people who do not think the Luke account is speaking of the same time. They think it's speaking of um, 70 AD. But when you do this and line them up like this, you absolutely know that's not true, that it is, is speaking of this time. Even though they're very similar, yeah, they look a lot alike. This guy looks a lot alike to what's going to happen here. But if you're looking in the Gospels, 
They're called synoptics. Why is that? The same story from a different perspective or view, or in this case, author's purpose for writing. But it's the same storyline, which means the hearer of the message heard it at the same time from the same person, or they're receiving the account. In the case of Luke, he received the account from the same person who heard the same message. So it has to be the same timeline. Uh huh. So I don't remember the verse exactly, but I know on more than one occasion that it says, so that the reader will understand. Yeah. Oh, let the reader understand. Okay. Um, that's, I think, put in, it's added in okay. for clarity okay. uh, in, uh, for us. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. Right. We put it together now, but I, I'm just going to take you through this, though, this Matthew, Mark and Luke, just because I want to show it to you what I did is I did all three of these Gospels side by side. And again, I lined things up when they hit the same. When you oh, when you start in Matthew, Mark and Luke, all three of them have Jesus at the temple speaking with his uh, 21. And you're, when we get into Revelation, we're going to be looking at all of these in a lot more detail, particularly Matthew 24 is a key one. But one of the things that you can t t pay note to here is in Luke 21, verse 37, Luke 21, verse 37, it says, now during the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. Okay, <laughs> Mount of Olives. Okay, so at, the, so at the beginning, he says, and Jesus came out of the temple in Matthew. In Mark, he came out of the temple. In Luke, he came out of the temple. Then you get into uh, 24, it says, um, that, well, there's a time lapse because now when, when they're speaking to Jesus and asking him this question, they're not at the temple anymore. Now they're on the Mount of Olivet. The close of Luke 21 tells you that's where they would go in the evening to sleep, right? So now you know there's a time lapse. So I just wrote on my observation worksheet right across that section there. I don't know if I can get this close enough for them, but I just put time lapse, time lapse, time lapse, so that you can see that it's consistent. And then he opens up in all three of them with the question that the disciples posed to him. You know, what is the time? It says, um, tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. And it's, it's said over and over, the second one, um, he was sitting on top of Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when will all these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are going to be fulfilled? Now in Luke 21, and they questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will all these things be and what will be the sign? And when will these things, when are these things about to take place? So what I'm saying is I could sit here and read this to you over and over and they're all they're all um but that is not yet the end but that is not yet the end but that is not yet the end uh the one who endures to the end will be saved the one who endures to the end will be saved the one who endures uh you will gain your lives <laughs> uh let those in who are in judea flee 
Let those who are in Judea flee. Let those who are in Judea flee. It says it consistently in all three of them straight across. It's really exciting when you do it that way, you guys, because all of a sudden you start, first of all, you, you line things up because you look for your keywords. Ta-da! See, inductive Bible study has a great value in this particular situation. Anytime you are told to go into the Gospels, do yourself a favor and look for that same storyline in your, in your synoptic gospel and lay it out just like this with your computer and cut and paste your passages in, lay them side by side, and then key mark all your words identical in the two accounts. And you will see what, what extra gets filled in and where it's consistently the same. And the, it is so amazing what additional insights that you get and how you clarify things for yourself. In this case, the good thing is also, it really helps you line up when he's speaking of, this is not yet the time, this is not yet the time, this is not yet the time. Then he hits the end and this is what's gonna happen at the end. When he answers the questions, what did you notice about how the answers came in comparison to how the questions were posed? Did you notice it became reversed? He, the, the questions were asked in this order and he answered in this order. <laughs> kind of interesting how he did that because he didn't start about when it would be. He, he told him when it won't be. First, you're going to see wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be all these things. So he gives all these details about things that are going to happen. So when are those things happening? If it's not yet, if it's not yet the end, when are those things happening? Right here in the gap. These things that he says, and it's not yet the end, these are things that are happening for you and I right now in the church age. Okay? That's really cool to know that, right? Not yet the end, not yet the end, not yet the end. These things are going to happen, but don't let that worry you. Um, let me go back here real quick, see if I can find it. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many and you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. You're not in full labor yet. You're approaching but you're, you're only in the birth pain time frame. Uh, then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. Are you hearing that? That's us. There's, until we're raptured out of here, there is potential for all these things to happen to us. Certainly, would you say you know of places in the world where Christians are killed because of their faith? Yeah. Yeah. Always have and always will. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then... Then the end comes. Now there's a qualifier given in verse 15 and 16 of Matthew that says, now this is when you know you're at the end. Will you and I see this? 
No. Because when does this happen? When is the, what is time times and half a time, which is in the middle of the week that gets broken and it's halfway through that tribulation period. So guess what? We're never going to see it. So who is this written to and for? This is written for the Jews who will be living during that and for the whole world that will read it and, and understand. Those who will have in, insight will understand. They'll, they're going to fully understand. We're beginning to see it, though. I got to tell you, we've come a long way, baby. In these in this last year and a half or so, no kidding. It's well, scary. Almost everywhere. It's almost everywhere. Yep. Places where it hasn't made it. Yep. And during the cool thing too is we're going to come to see that during the tribulation there is going to be a witness left in the in the land. The people will still be hearing the gospel. Right. But for sure, what it's saying is there's going to be the gospel given to the whole world so that so that when these things occur, no one is going to be able to say, well, I didn't have an opportunity. I didn't have a chance. I didn't hear. I didn't know. I, I can tell you, having lived, for instance, in Turkey for the years that we were there, I could walk anywhere downtown at Christmas time. And guess what was in all the windows? Little Christmas trees and Santa Claus. They know about Christmas. And if you ask them about Jesus, they, they know who he is. They think of him as a prophet, but they do know who he is. They've heard, they've heard. So that, and that was, we were there, golly, 25, 30 years ago now. So it's been a while for us, but yeah. Okay, so in Mark 13, you see verse 14, do you see how it lines up? Personally, what I would do on your observation worksheets would be to put a box around those two that match with one another. Verses 15 and 16 of Matthew 24, just put a big box around it. You might even want to color it in lightly with a light color, like a yellow or a pink or something soft that you can read through easily. And then do the same thing in Mark 13, verse 14, because what, what that will do for you is it will show you where they line up and color the box the same color in both sheets of paper. And that way you'll see them. And if you want to do 20 as well, you're going to mark verse 20 and 21 of Luke 21. And there it says slightly different wording in Luke 21. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her des desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart and let not, not, let not those who are in the um, country enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. It says in 22, woe to those who are with child. In Mark 13, verse 17, woe to those who are with child. In Matthew 24, 19, but woe to those who are with child. So you see those line up with one another. And when you key them in the same way, you'll see the flow and how the, how the synoptics match. Okay. So I wanted to show that to you because we're going to be doing this one day. And if you don't know how to do that, figure it out the best way you can. If nothing else, I like to use my, um, my what? Uh, yeah, you can do it in columns. If you, you know how to set up a column on your Word document, you could do it that way. I actually use, uh, I input a, a, a box. So I set up three, bo my boxes like this and it, it encircles them for me. And I can slip them right into the boxes. I can make as many boxes as I want. That's how I do my charts every week. 
a text box, right? Right on the Word document. So there's a box, here's a box, here's a box. I give my titles and it just makes it really nice and neat and it keeps everything together. Um, it's on your, on your, on your word at the top of your bar, there's going to be a place that says insert. And when you click on that, it'll show you this little grid. It'll pop down this with, it's got bunches of little boxes in it. And you just take your pointer, drag down on it and you drag over however many boxes you want across and however many boxes you want down. It's the build your table. That's what you're doing. You're building a table. That's. So we need some lessons. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Right. But now that you know about it, you can try it. And I would pretty much listen. I am the worst. You ask Kristen. I am so bad on technology. And if I'm really, really bad. So if. But the thing is, what do they say? Necessity is the mother of she all inventions, right? She can make word do what she wants. I can make word do it. Workaround. Yes. Because I had to learn it because in order to teach, I needed I needed order, you know, and I needed to be able to, to compartmentalize things. And I like just like I always say, this goes in this box, this goes in this box, this goes in this box. So that is what I did even this week. I have looked at Daniel, basically, we're looking at the signs of his coming, and the first box is Greece, and the and the um, the little the rather small harm, the despicable king, who is Antiochus Epiphanes. So we should write that down here. Uh huh. Not always, not always, because what did we, yeah, not all, because what did we see right here? And this is in which kingdom? Greece. So during the days of Greece, they had an abomination of desolation. Do you remember God telling Israel throughout their history in the Old Testament? They, they committed acts of abomination. There is the abomination of desolation which will occur at the end time. Okay. That one goes at the end time. Right. But there's this abomination of desolation, which happened here. Just blew my mind. Okay. Okay. That is what your homework was this week, was for you to identify the fact that the term abomination of desolation is a word in, what does it say in Matthew 24? Go back to Matthew 24. Mm -hmm. Right. Basically, yes, but I'm going to add to that because there's not just those two. There are other times when there have been abominations that have occurred throughout all of history with Israel. Every time they desecrated the temple or or um, in any way did not follow the the way God wanted them to approach the holiness of God, then th this would be considered an abomination. And, you know, in many cases, people died. Sure. God would kill them right there on the spot because it was an abomination. Sure. Okay. So just know that the word abomination is a word. Sure. The abomination of desolation at the end time is a distinctive time in history. Right. Yes. There was this abomination of desolation, which happened in Greece. There will be another one come at the end of the time. 
11.7. Okay, what does it say there? Right. At the appointed time. That's right. There's more than one of them. That's good. Excellent. And that is all you really needed to do by doing this. What you're seeing is there is yet one ahead for us. The others have already occurred in the past and they're all recorded in scripture for us. And although there may very well be abominations taking place even today, would you say there are abominations taking place in America today? Things that are abominations before the Lord, but not this one. This one that's being spoken of by Daniel and the pro, uh, through Daniel and Daniel's prophecy is a distinctive one that at the appointed time, it's coming at a very, at a decreed time, right? And as a matter of fact, he goes in here, he says, um, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child and children will rise up against parents and have put them to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay, so this is speaking of a specific one that comes at the end of the age. That's right. Which verse are you in? Okay. Yes, but take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. The other thing he says is in 32, if you drop down to 32 of Mark, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Take heed to keep on the alert for you do not know when the appointed time will come. So what we, what we didn't do, what I wish we had time for is a timeline that shows you how all these events fit uh, on this time factor, but that he says, when we, when we hit the time when Messiah the Prince came and then was cut off, how many weeks of the 70 weeks decreed in Daniel 9 have been accomplished? 69. 69. How many weeks are decreed? 70. 70. So we have one more week to come. How long is that, is that uh, covenant made by the prince who is to come at the end of the age? How long does he make a covenant with Israel for? One week. And in the middle of the week, he breaks it which gives us that reference of time, times, and half a time. So now you've got everything locked into the right place. You now know that although there was an abomination of desolation that took place during the days of Greece with Antiochus Epiphanes, there is another one yet to come at the end of the age. And when you are reading in, in any other Bible study, I just want to make, make you aware of it, there are lots of references to abominations that are done. And you could call them abominations of desolation sometime. But they're very specific about the phraseology on this one. The abomination of desolation. And it's demonstrated and it's going to happen again. Okay, we're good. All right, so let's go on now then and let's cover, let's cover what we learn about what happened in the days of Rome. So we're going to talk, let's do um, Daniel 9.
and that was 24 to 27. And that was that 70 weeks we just talked about. Decreed. Uh, Kathy said, um, I, ooh, she's gone. No, this is Kathy. What was the word that you said you looked up? It wasn't decreed. It was something else. It was appointed time. Appointed it was time. Appointed. Thank you. So decreed equals appointed time. Okay. So there's an appointed time or a decreed time that is set for God to deal with Israel, right? He says, Dan, it's for, who is it for that this decree is? For Daniel's people, right? And holy city. So we now know that means what? Israel. That's the nation of Israel. So these end times is specifically for God to deal with the nation of Israel. That's very interesting thought. If you, if you ponder on that just a little bit, why do you think it's necessary for God to deal with Israel, the nation? Okay. Right. There you go. They failed to portray God in the, in the way that God is. And in doing that, then God had to cast them off the land as he said he would. Obey and I'll bless. Disobey and I will curse. Therefore, the cursing for them was to be cast off their land, put underneath the subjugation of another king of another nation, right? And then during that time, then what God is doing is he's pouring out his wrath, his discontent with the things that they had done to show them that a holy God cannot tolerate this kind of disobedience. And they made covenant with him. Because, yeah, they're in covenant. Okay, who else is in covenant with God besides Israel? You and I are. Now that should put the fear of God in every one of us, just a tad bit. Not, not to be fearful from the perspective of a fright that God is uh, vengeful or wrathful in a mean way, but that there is accountability before him. For, uh, God's people still are in accountability to be obedient to God, to honor God, to portray him properly. Every morning we get up, we don't see it visually, but we have this little jacket that we wear all over town. And on the back of our jacket, it says, I belong to Jesus. And because that's who Israel was. I belong to Yahweh. And they were to walk the earth in a way that honored him. And when they didn't, he cast them off. God can discipline you and I too. Remember, Hebrews teaches us that. that he disciplines his children. Um, fortunately, he's not going to cast us off the land because we're not on a... The... <laughs> okay, now he says, um, therefore, then what, we, what we're going to see is we see all of this happen. We see the timeline in history, we see the cross, we see that the first 69 weeks were accomplished at the time of when Jesus came in for the triumphal entry, right? And then we saw the temple, that's a funky looking temple, and it is destroyed in 70 AD, right? And now we have right now what's called the church age, Right. And we are waiting for that time when the one week will be finished. We don't know when it is. That's what it says for us in, in the book of uh, Matthew. Right. 
Oh no, Mark, sorry. So let's put it on here. Mark uh, 13, verse 32. It says, you do not know the day or the hour. Okay. Therefore, what are you supposed to do? Be on the alert. Okay. Take heed, it says. <laughs> All right. So that's 32 and 33. All right. So that's basically the information that shows you where what has already been accomplished in this, this part of the fourth beast. But there's more to come concerning that fourth beast. And that's the rest of what we want to cover right now. Um, I, I could have covered a whole lot more than I did. But let's talk about that end time king that we see in chapter 11 again. What do we see about him? What do we learn about him? Because he's going to be so close to this rather small horn. What does he do? In, starting in verse 36 to the end. Do as he Does as he pleases. Okay. That just tells you he's he's got a lot of power, right? Yeah, he's going to... There you go. He will magnify himself. Above every God. That's in verse um, 36. Yeah. 1136. Okay. Yes. He will speak monstrous things against. I'm just going to put God <laughs> just to simplify it, meaning God most high, right? <laughs> Also in 1136. Okay. He's going to prosper until what? Okay. He will prosper until the indignation is finished. Okay, now let's talk about that word indignation because that was something she asked us to look up. But and then it goes on, it says, and for, I like that, we should finish it. For what? That which is decreed, which is decreed, will be done. Now you're going to go, this takes you back up here. It's decreed, it's an appointed time and it will be done. Wow, that's pretty definitive, right? It, it is not, there is no question, you can be absolutely sure this is going to happen. And so you and I need to be aware of it, which is what we're doing, what we are doing right here. Listen, can you imagine how much you already know now going into the Revelation study, how much anchor you've got started? You already have identified so much of what's gonna happen in certain terms, like time, times, and half a time, you immediately know right where to put it on the map or on the timeline. 
you, you know about this end time king now, you're going to know right where he goes and what kind of activities he's going to be doing. Tell me what that word indignation means. It literally means, let's put it up here, indignation. What's the number? Number 2195, and it means what? Wrath, rage. Okay, who's wrath and who's rage? There's a verse in Isaiah 34 too that talks about, uses that word indignation again. It says, for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. So it uses the word twice as synonyms to one another. So it shows you indignation and his wrath are, are synonymous in the way that they are used here. Ezekiel twenty two thirty one is another one. He says, I have poured out my indignation on them. And he's speaking about Israel. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads. Now, at this time, this indignation and this wrath, he's speaking about during the days when he's about to take them into their Babylonian captivity or has been taking them into their Babylonian captivity. This is Ezekiel. and He goes in during the second siege of Jerusalem. Then the Zephaniah one that I told you all about earlier uh, before we started the video um, in Zephaniah 3, if you read the whole thing, it's a really good uh, backdrop to everything that we're going to be looking at here. He's speaking to Israel in there, and he says, For then I will remove from your midst your proud. That's what he's going to do, remove the proud uh, and the exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Isn't that amazing? There is going to be no Canaanite in the land is another verse that speaks in that way. There's going to be no sin, people who are in opposition to God on his holy mountain again, ever. Isn't that awesome? And we get to be there. <laughs> I love it. Eventually we get to be there. Not right at the beginning, but in, eventually. Okay, so indignation is wrath and rage. And whose wrath and rage? God's. God's wrath and rage, okay? And this wrath and rage, there's also going to be a wrath and rage and an indignation of the Antichrist against the, uh, us too. Just remember the word indignation. It's just a, it's just a qualify, it's a um, verb, right? It tells you what they're doing or how they're going to be acting. The rage of God, however, compared to the rage of man cannot be compared. So God's wrath and God's rage will be poured out. What is his ultimate goal? to purify, refine, right? That's what he says at the end of Daniel 12 too. And in Zephaniah, so that there will never again be a haughty one on my holy mountain. Um, all right, so let's go back to uh, this end time king. Um, we see him doing all kinds of things in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 36 to 45. He's gonna be parceling out land for a price. What land? Israel, God's people's land. This isn't just talking about land around the world. This is God's land because that's what the focus of this particular vision is about. Uh, the kings of north and south of Israel are going to storm against him. 
it also tells you in 40, both in 41 and 45, where will he enter? Yeah, he will enter the beautiful land. What is that called? What is the beautiful land? The beautiful land. And you can just put a star of David right on the top of that so that you're sure you understand that speaking about Israel, right? Um, what else will he do? Yeah. This one's very interesting. I thought that verse was it, but he says, many lands will fall, but Edom and Moab and the, there's a qualifier, but the, the sons of Ammon will be rescued out of his hand. So those are the little details that you can, if you want to just kind of dig out and do, but I can tell you that I don't remember when we did our um, revelation course, the, the last few times I've done it, we didn't really get into the details of trying to pinpoint all those things. What we're doing is looking at it more in a general term because um, the names of these nations and their land masses and who possesses them kind of changes through history. But what we can know for sure is everything is with, uh, is with Israel. It's the central heart of it all. And those things north and south of it are the countries that are going to be primarily involved. Okay. But the important thing is I think about these, about these two nations is that they uh, provided protection yeah. for Israel. When right, going right. We're going to, and we're, and also knowing their, their history, you know, who they came from, who are they the sons of? And I mean, that's kind of interesting too, to see how they, they get rescued by God and why. So we'll look at that later. Okay. Um, what else is he going to do? Look at 45. Or 44. Okay, well, what, go ahead. Tell me what he's going to do so we can write something down. <laughs> he'll stretch out his hand against other countries in the land of Egypt. Oh, yeah, there's Egypt mentioned it now. This is interesting where Ammon and Moab and um, uh, Edom, Moab, and Ammon are going to be rescued, but Egypt is not. Interesting. Poor Egypt. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah. And he'll gain all the wealth, too, of the temple, also of those in Jerusalem as well, because he'll have also uh, destroyed there. Um, it says in verse 44, he will go forth with what? Uh-huh. Go forth with great wrath. But what's going to happen to him? He will come to his end. Yes, we will. <laughs> we will come to his end. Now, the certain man uh, dressed in linen in Daniel 12, he talks about, again, this same time, right? What does he tell us about it? In uh, chapter Daniel 12, this is that vision of, of a certain man dressed in linen. And he is speaking about this end time king. And what does he tell us about it? 
what does he tell us about the time frame? Start in 12.1. Mm -hmm. It's time of distress. Yeah, such as never occurred before, right? And how long is that time frame going to be in 12.6? Time times and half a time. 12.6. That's 12.1. Okay. And when does the end finally come in 12-7? That's right. It comes when they finish shattering the power of the holy people. Now, what does that mean? What, what is the power of the holy people? What has Israel been doing that has caused God to bring all this upon Israel at this time in history? They have been rebelling against him. So the, the power of the holy people that he must shatter has to do with rebellion, right? Has to do with their rebellion. That's their power that he must shatter. He's not going to sh shatter the people. He'll, he'll shatter some of the people. But those who come through are going to be saved. He said some are going to be rescued also. But he shatters those who, who are not bowing their knee, that it's going to be Israel who has not yet accepted Jesus as the coming Messiah. And they're, they're going to be put away. We're going to study lots more about that later and give you a lot more details. Uh, let me just read in closing uh, just a little bit about God's wrath and indignation and the impartiality of it, though. I, I kind of feel like we need to end on a sort of a happy note, but also on a, on a self-reflective note. Because as we're looking at what God is doing here, and we've now been able to see all the kingdoms. We've looked at Babylon, Medo-Persia, now Greece. We've looked a lot at Greece. Now we've got it handled with Rome, the fourth beast. And now we see this fourth beast with this divided gap of time in between. So you see it's still in God's perspective. It's still one time frame. It's still one, one kingdom, he calls it. Which is why, if you've not heard it before, you've now heard it many times through this class, that sometimes this end time kingdom is called revived Rome. Rome, when it died, it died out, but it didn't die out to another nation, world nation that took it over. It simply dissipated, right? And it became multitudes of nations in the world with their own governing powers. But there's not been a world power that has been like Rome was sort of at this like time. Greece right. Like Alexander died, so you had these four things that broke up and they're still kind of a little bit, like a little bit. Clothes, you still have Britain, you still but have but when Greece died out, who took it over? Yeah. Rome. But when Rome died out, what? Many Nothing. It just sort of dispersed. Right. So what we now know then is God in the in the depiction of all of these visions we've had, he sees this Rome in the days when the Christ came and their temple was destroyed and the church age began. He sees this all as the fourth beast. This is the time of the fourth beast. When he goes into that end time king, there's just a, simply this gap of time, which is this church age. But God sees all this as Rome, the fourth beast.
Okay. Now let me just talk to you a little bit then about how this wrath of God and his indignation. Um, I had read to you earlier a couple of these things. Just go back with me to Ezekiel 22 in your mind. God is speaking of Israel's great sins, right? The things that they have done. He says, you are a land that is not cleansed. The people of the land have practiced oppression. They have wronged the poor and the needy. They have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I search for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it but I did not find one. Thus, I have poured out my indignation on them. Now, this is speaking specifically of him removing them off the land and taking them into Babylonian captivity. So this is a precursor picture of what God is going to be doing even at the end time as he judges the unrighteous who won't do as they have not done. They have these multitudes of sin. I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Again, there's the synonymous use of or the synonym of indignation and wrath. And he says, their way I have brought upon their heads. Now, if God will judge his own people, the ones he has chosen, what does that tell you about the rest of the nations? Yeah. Now I want to bring it forward, though, to you into the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 says this. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or imp impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That is a, there's a generic phraseology and it brings us all underneath this picture of how God judges and how he's just. Yes, he's going to do this really, really horrific thing specifically to the nation of Israel, but he's got a plan. He's got a purpose. But don't think that lets us off the hook just because we aren't going to be here for it. He says in Romans 2, 4 to 11, or do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You can't stay in your sins. You can't, you can't say, oh, listen, it's all grace. It's all grace. I'm covered. I can, I can sin all the more, Romans, right? But he's saying, no, don't you understand the patience of God is to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up uh, wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the, uh, of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. There are many people out there that call themselves Christians, but you know they're, they're not living the life of a Christian. They're not living in submission and obedience to God and his word. And it does make you wonder, are they really in faith? If they really love the Lord, would they continue to be this willful? He said, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, and they get, they're going to receive eternal life. If you're actually living in such a way as you're seeking for those things that please God, you will have eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Those are our words that we looked at this week. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who, who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See the impartiality of God? This is lovely. Romans 11, 25 to 29. 
when you look at what God has is doing in these end times for the, the concerning the revelation and the coming of that great abomination of desolation and the coming of that antichrist and God dealing with all that. He says um, in Romans 11, 25 to 29, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so all Israel shall be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In other words, God has a word and a covenant he has made and a promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right? I am going to do these things for Israel. I will put them on their land. They will be my people. I will be their God. And, and one day he speaks throughout all of the Old Testament. There's going to be a temple. People are going to come to worship him. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. And he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Lovely. It's, that's a word of comfort for you and I to know. He has a promise. He's going to do these really, th these things are really horrific, but you can understand that God is fair. He judges Gentile and Jew in the same manner, but he also has a work he has to do with a nation because he has a national covenant with that particular people group and he's going to deal with them. But what's really cool is he actually does deal individually with them in order to bring them to that fullness of a, of a, nation at the end of the age the scripture tells us two-thirds of them will die because they won't come in line but one-third of them will come to God in faith and when they do he's going to put them back on their land and they will he will be their God they will be his people and no one where was it that one about they won't they won't be unholy on his holy mountain ever again yeah it was that the Zephaniah for within, I will remove from your midst your proud, exalting ones. You will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Zephaniah 3.11. So we covered abomination of desolation. Do you all, we didn't go through all the definitions on that. Do you need me to do that with you before we close this out? Abomination, what did it mean? Do you remember? Desecration. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much it's things pertaining to idolatry, right? But it's anything that you put in the place of God, anything that's loathsome or vile, right? So that abomination that took place with Antiochus was a pig that was considered vile and it was dishonoring to God when they did it that way because there's a blood of a lamb that was to be given in symbol the symbolism that God gave the church. Or I should the church. He gave the the um, the Jews for the the temple was a picture of the coming Christ, and to replace it with a pig, it was a vile and loathsome thing that they did. And desolation. What did that word mean? Yeah. To ruin. To ruin. It's a horrible thing that defiles. It's, it's anything that lays it right. It, it's just a devastation. 
So that abomination of desolation that to, to devastate thing. So that's what this was, this abomination of desolation. And then to make desolate, the one who comes, this little rather small horn who at the end times is called that insolent king or that uh, the king that will magnify himself, right? He says, be appalled to stun, to cause horror to devastate, to appall or be appalled, to be astounded or to cause ruin. He's one who's gonna do all those things when he comes at the end. The Antichrist. Say, yeah? Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, yes. Sorry. Yeah. But you know what? There's always, there's always precursors to it. There are always people like the Antichrist on the scene of history. And there's because guess who else does not know the day nor the hour? Satan. Because we learned that when we studied angels, they're not all knowing. They don't know everything. Now, are they aware of what we're aware of? But what does Jesus tell us? We don't know the day nor the hour. So we're supposed to be living on alert all the time. So guess who else is on alert all the time? Satan. So yeah, he has people in powerful places ready for for the the go button and that day when the church is raptured and this all begins to unfold that man will already be in place and i don't even know if it matters who he is but that he is a man that satan can use to accomplish the things that he's going to do at the end of the age there are many antichrists first john speaks of in chapter two in the world i think that was one of the things i noticed about matthew and mark and i don't know why i threw my eyes to it but it was Yes, but which makes sense when the list we made on the end time king is all about how he is going to exalt himself above all gods. And so all these false prophets are going to come on. He's going to whack them out of the way immediately. But the false prophets are going to convince us to believe the lies of Satan as well. And there's going to be a false prophet. We saw that in, in um, Revelation 13 when we looked at that. Oh, there is. Do you know how many? Yeah. Do you know how many Jesuses there have been come to Israel since the day Jesus was born? They actually call them Jesus, and they believe that he is, yeah, false prophets that come in his name. Very interesting. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for coming this week. Appreciate it. See, one more week left, and we're all done. <laughs>